How Voters Judge Congress, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Americans love to hate Congress, but there's actually a bit of an uptick in congressional approval. It may seem like it's hard for legislators to satisfy voters and hard for citizens to judge what Congress is up to. But it turns out citizens do judge their members on the policies they develop and promote, the votes they take, and whether they stray too far from voters. And members in both parties do react to voter opinions, but in distinct ways. This week, I talked to Carlos Alguera of the University of Texas at El Paso about his political behavior article, Congressional Approval and Responsible Party Government. He finds that public approval of Congress is responsive to the ideological position of the majority party relative to the voters. Parties are judged on what they do. That means Democrats will be punished if they stray too far from the middle. I also talked to Adam Caton of the University of West Florida about his Perspective on Politics article with Ryan Dawkins, Incongruent Voting or Symbolic Representation. He finds that Republican voters judge their legislators more on their symbolic ideology, whereas Democrats judge their members based on specific issue positions. Republican legislators are similarly more responsive to their district's ideologies, whereas Democrats respond to issue views. They both find more responsiveness and more reasonable voters than you might expect. Algara says voters aren't just partisan cheerleaders, but evaluate Congress ideologically. As a scholarly community, we really don't understand what motivates citizens' perceptions of Congress. There have been some work suggesting that it's partisanship, that it's just a function of partisan identity, a little bit of work suggesting that it could be policy-based. And I found that gap in the literature a little bit surprising, given the fact that Congress, of course, is, you know, the Article I branch. It's the chief policymaking body of the country. And so I come in here really building off the literature of what parties do in Congress, what their prerogatives are, especially in this era of responsible party government. And I posit a theory that, you know, of course, it could be partisan, right? Sort of this part, partisan uh, teamsmanship that uh, voters really like it when their parties are in control of Congress. But I take one step back and think it could really be driven by ideological preferences in the positions of the two political parties, the majority and the minority parties. And so in the political behavior piece, what I find is I find that citizens do assess Congress in ideological terms on the basis of policies. So if you're a, a citizen and your preferences are closer to the Democratic Party relative to the Republican Party, and the Democrats are in charge, you're going to be more likely to approve of Congress and the, and the job performance that they're doing. If you still have that same ideological distance, but the Republicans are in charge, you're going to respond accordingly. You're going to disapprove of Congress because your preferences are out of sync with what the Republican majority is going to argue for and advocate for in Congress. And I find that this ideological component is very much distinct from partisanship. And that is even looking at within a part, set of parties. So, for example, within the Republican Party, Republican partisans that are closer to congressional Democrats are more likely to approve of a Democratic Congress than Republicans that are further away. Um, so this suggests that voters, while they do have partisan preferences, they do evaluate Congress in, col in collective terms, but also in ideological terms, that, that they have the ability to assess Congress not only as a chief 
policymaking body of the country, but they can assess this in explicitly policy terms. And so that's what I find using cross-sectional data uh, from the CCES, um, it's called the CES now, but, uh, and I also find this in a, in a panel of, of uh, voters from 2010 to 2014, which allows me to get leverage amongst the same respondents before the 2010 Tea Party wave and then after. Congress isn't popular, but that doesn't mean it isn't judged rationally. Congress, of course, has been traditionally unpopular. You know, over the course of my survey data, you know, con congressional approval really doesn't rise. I think the high was about 22% 2012, and then it really starts to crater around 2016. That was the time of government shutdowns. That was, you know, Ted Cruz infamously shutting down the government over President Obama's refusal to repeal his own signature healthcare law. So Congress during that period was chronically unpopular. And I think in the literature, we, we think of congressional approval as just being this sort of valence item that, you know, Congress doesn't do anything that's, you know, therefore, you know, uh, the citizens react negatively. And I think my piece tries to sort of draw a more dis a distinct theory in terms of really giving citizens a break and saying that, you know, they, they're thinking about Congress rationally. And when Congress pursues policies that are away from them, they're going to disapprove of Congress. But, you know, Congress, uh, especially relative to the president, is still an unpopular body. But, you know, if, if you look at the recent Pew data, you know, it's, it's coming up a little bit. So, you know, there, there's a little bit of hope. Caden and Dawkins were trying to understand a related puzzle. Republicans don't vote with their district opinion as often, and voters don't seem to care. The evidence is based on the cooperative congressional election study data aggregated to the congressional district level, paired with roll call data from the U.S. House, which allows us to compare the prevailing opinion on a specific issue in a congressional district with the way the representative voted on that same issue. It shows that for uh, the selected very high profile issues that are asked about in the CCES, which are the very type of legislation where we would expect to see the most congruence, Republicans vote on the same side as a majority of their district only 57% of the time, while Democrats do 71% of the time. That imbalance is what we set out to explain, especially because Republicans don't seem to be electorally punished for their voting records at systematically higher rates. You know, and if you average the two parties together, only around 65% of roll calls in the House of Representatives on these issues are consistent with district opinion. I first noticed that when I was doing research for another project, uh, and I thought, what in the world is going on here? You know, like all Congress scholars, I've read Mayhew's The Electoral Connection a thousand times, and it seemed, you know, with good reason, and it seemed like voting against public opinion on one out of every three roll calls on super salient party-defining issues was a really high rate of incongruence which seems like an awfully big liability for people who are supposedly single-minded seekers of re-election. They found that Republican voters want ideological representation. Democrats want issue agreement. We find that people use both their opinions about policy issues and their ideological identities as either liberals or conservatives to evaluate the actions of elected officials. 
This sometimes leads people to want their representatives to take positions that contradict the issue opinions they give on surveys, because a lot of voters want their ideological team to win, even if they disagree with it on a specific policy. Members of the House respond accordingly. Sometimes when they vote against the wishes of their constituents, as measured in public opinion polls, they are still actually delivering what those voters want because the polls aren't capturing the attitude that voters are using to evaluate a roll call vote. Like you and David Hopkins find, uh, we find that the two parties behave very differently from one another and that their supporters want different kinds of representation. However, we approach this asymmetry from a slightly different angle. Drawing on copious literature from political psychology, we begin with the observation that ideology is a multidimensional concept that manifests itself along two dimensions, an issue-specific dimension that produces policy preferences that can be aligned on the traditional left-right spectrum, and you know, people call this operational ideology or policy ideology, and an identity-based dimension that produces political preferences rooted in attitudes towards in-groups and out-groups, which is often called symbolic ideology. The out-groups in question being liberals and conservatives. Ryan and I show that people use both their policy-related and symbolic identity-based preferences when evaluating the kind of representation they receive in Congress. Republican voters, however, are much more likely to want their ideological team to win, even when it conflicts with their own issue positions, than Democrats are. Democrats tend to prefer that representatives support their individual policy preferences uh, issue by issue, even when those contradict the wishes of other liberals and other Democrats. This preference for policy representation holds the Democratic Party together rather than driving it apart because Democrats tend to agree in their support for liberal policies, even when they don't call themselves liberals. Uh, we suspect that these asymmetries stem from the way political elites from each party manage the ideological diversity in their respective coalitions in order to remain united and maximize the chances of winning elections. People, uh, people here being voters tend to appreciate it when their representatives cast a roll call vote that they agree with, but they also appreciate it when their representative casts a vote that is congruent with their symbolic ideology, even when they disagree. That is to say, a vote that supports their ideological team. Similarly, Democrats in Congress react to voters' issue attitudes, Republicans to their ideological labels. Members of the House behave as if they're responding to these incentives. Um, District-level opinion and district-level symbolic ideology both predict roll call, vote, roll call votes, even when they're, when they're included together in a model. Um, and this is an important finding because in the representation literature, symbolic ideology is often used as a proxy for policy attitudes. And we think that it's not. Um, we think that since it's a separate dimension, it has an independent effect on the way people evaluate the kind of policy representation they receive. That will sound familiar. It builds on longstanding differences between voters' ideological identifications and issue positions. But what it boils down to is that people answer survey questions and give their policy opinions, and they also identify as either ideological liberals or conservatives. And it's really frequent for people to adopt an ideological label that mismatches their stated policy views. So there, there are a lot of people who are who identify themselves as conservatives, but on most policy issues, they agree with the liberal position. 
and vice versa. But it turns out that incongruent conservatives, people who call themselves conservatives, but take the liberal position on most issues are more common by a lot than people who call themselves liberals, but actually take conservative positions. So the fact that um, this operational symbolic disconnect is just the phenomenon that people's stated policy preferences don't always match the ideological label they attach to themselves. We think it matters a great deal for understanding representation in Congress because of the stark asymmetry that's present in the operational symbolic disconnect. Alguera tried to put legislators and the public on the same ideological spectrum with both symbolic and operational measures. One of the classical problems of studying representation is how do you get the preferences of individual people and their elites in the same common space, right? Of course, you know, we delegate to our elected representatives to take votes in Congress. Not every citizen, you know, has an opinion about you know, a specific roll call. Certainly, we don't have surveys that measure people's opinions on every single roll call. So you can't, you know, try to infer ideological positions doing that. My paper leverages a lot of the new methodology used over the years in political science. And I do, uh, I'm able to create two different measures of citizen preferences and the preferences of their members of Congress, which constitute political parties on the same scale. And the way that I do that is I use the place, the left-right placements that citizens, uh, that survey respondents rather, are uh, that they answer on surveys. And this is just a simple measure of you place yourself on a, you know, a scale from one to seven, one being very liberal, seven being very conservative. Where do you place yourself? And these survey respondents are then asked to place their members of Congress and their United States senators and the president and the political parties. And from there, we're able to use a method developed by some colleagues at the University of Georgia that allows us to correct for bias and how people look at these uh, ideological perceptions. So, of course, in the literature, we know that you know, liberal is sort of a, a dirty term here. You know, it's, it's more desirable to be a moderate. We're able to use methods to correct for systematic survey measurement error and how people place themselves and also place different stimuli, right? So liberals are going to perceive Donald Trump, for example, to be much more conservative, right, than Republicans traditionally. Um, certainly Republicans will perceive Joe Biden as much more liberal than Democrats will. So this method allows us to, um, to estimate ideal points, essentially, that you know, are relatively unbiased to this sort of measurement error. Another method that I use to measure ideological preferences on the same scale is really building off of Stephen Jesse's work at the University of Texas, um, his stellar work, that we're able to use um, roll call questions that survey respondents are asked to scale. These are actually roll calls that members of Congress take to scale them and members of Congress, members of the Senate on the same scale, right? So in this measure, we're explicitly relying on policy items. So the first measure is relying on sort of this, these perceptions of left-right placements. In the latter, we're really relying on, on these policy items. Um, and this method allows us to, to build, you know, ideal points based on these sort of roll call measures. And I'm able to over tackle this, you know, the problem that I mentioned earlier, that's very perverse 
in uh, this representational literature. And that is, how do you measure people's ideological preferences in the same ideological space as their members of Congress? And this, these two methods allow me to get empirical leverage on that. He finds these measurements of ideology all correlated and agrees they could be a bit different by party. The perceptual measures, you can make an argument is more symbolic, you know, and, and, and scholars do argue that, you know, using those perceptual measures is very much symbolic. You know, of course, we know that citizens that describe themselves as very conservative, for example, have very, lib- you know, in some cases, moderate or liberal issue positions. So, for example, uh, the Affordable Care Act um, is is relatively popular and a lot of very conservative voters, um, for example, do not they don't support repealing the Affordable Care Act. What my research shows is that, you know, if you look at the symbolic, if you buy the argument that perceptual placements, you know, placing yourself on the left right scale is symbolic. What I find is that the two measures, if you measure ideology and symbolic or operate, you know, or operational terms, they're highly correlated. You know, they're, they're correlated at, at levels of, I believe, about point, you know, point set point six or point seven or so, you know, so, you know, they're, they're fairly correlated. So it, it's very hard to, you know, when you're studying representation, what's the difference between uh, symbolic and, and operational? In that Perspectives on Politics paper, I think it does a really nice job theoretically trying to sort out the differences between symbolic and operational ideology, you know, and I think there's a lot of work to be that needs to be done here to see, you know, if there's a asymmetry in terms of how Democrats perceive representation and how Republicans do. Are Democrats more symbolic and Republicans more operational? I think this piece gives us a really great starting point. Caden and Dawkins treated the voter differences separately. First, they match voters and legislators with their policy positions. Then they match them with ideology and overall policy direction. So a roll call vote on final passage is a policymaking decision. It's a policy action. And the law is operational by definition. So classifying congruence with operational ideology is easy enough. If people support the position their lawmaker takes on the roll call vote as measured by a policy question, that's operational congruence. The CCS asked respondents whether they support or oppose policies that receive a roll call vote, and so that lets us do that in a fairly straightforward fashion. For symbolic congruence, we asked, does a yes vote on the roll call move policy to the right or left, and does the respondent say they are a liberal or conservative? If the bill moves policy to the right and the respondent identifies as a conservative, then that's symbolic congruence. But that may not be operational congruence. For example, there are a lot of self-identified conservatives who support increasing the minimum wage. You know, I'm speaking to you from Florida, a state that simultaneously gave its electoral college votes to Donald Trump and elects Republicans, but also approved a constitutional amendment with over a 60 vote margin increasing the minimum wage. So take a conservative who calls themselves a conservative and supports increasing the minimum wage. If their representative votes against a minimum wage increase, that would be a symbolically congruent vote because their representative took the conservative position, but it would be operationally incongruent because it contradicts the stated preference of that voter. Um, So our theory hinges on which vote those people want when they can't have it both ways. Symbolic representation is still representation, they say, and Republican voters like it that way. 
The best evidence that it is representation is that Republican voters seem to want this kind of representation. They seem to, they approve of representatives who cast conservative votes, even when they disagree with those votes. And Republicans seem to have a pretty good electoral record by making symbolic appeals to the ideological team um, as opposed to policy details. Now, if somebody prefers policy representation, they might think that that's not good representation. And indeed, it may not be good representation by some measures, but the evidence would simply be that Republican voters seem to, they seem to like it. It seems to work. And so if the goal is to do things that help you win re-election, the Republican strategy is accomplishing that. Caden says that means both parties face risks in representation. In pursuing these complementary strategies, one, a policy, you know, a, a strategy, the Democratic strategy is to pursue popular policies, and the Republican strategy is to uh, appeal to the most popular symbolic identity. And both, you know, both parties are pursuing a strategy that makes sense in terms of holding their own coalitions together. Uh, and both strategies come with a risk. So I think it's entirely possible that, uh, if not likely, that policies that poll well will become unpopular due to a backlash because a lot of people who express support for the content of those policies will also be susceptible to appeals, you know, framed in terms of symbolic ideology, symbolic conservatism and opposing, you know, uh, liberal overreach or something like that. Republicans are also taking a political risk as well in that they are making a symbolic appeal against policies that poll well. Uh, and you could imagine this strategy working for either party or backfiring for either party. But they're both, I think, playing to their strengths and what holds their coalition together. You know, Democrats, uh, Democratic voters do not share a common symbolic ideology. A lot of them call themselves conservatives and moderates. So Democrats downplay that and, and just talk about the policies that poll well, but they leave themselves open to that valence critique or that, that wedge critique, rather, of, of liberal overreach. And Republicans, on the other hand, double down on the fact that these policies aren't conservative, which resonates with most of the electorate and might peel off support from people who kind of like the content of the policies. So I don't know which way it'll go, but I can see the risk and reward for both parties. Algara says that means Democrats could do worse with the public if they move policy or the agenda leftward. If the congressional Democratic majority pushes policies that are out of step with what the public wants, uh, you know, certainly what the median member of the public wants, you're going to lower congressional approval. And with that comes electoral ramifications, you know, and this is potentially damaging in the House of Representatives, where Democrats have about a six, a six seat majority, five seat now due to a vacancy, I believe, in Florida. But you know, it's a very narrow majority and the Republicans are very well positioned. Looking at the Senate, Democrats have a little bit more insulation because there's a you know, maybe a little bit less seats being targeted. There, there are no Democrats, for example, up in seats that in states rather that Donald Trump carried. You know, they have Georgia and Arizona, which were very narrow. But this research suggests that if Democrats go too far to the left, in terms of advocating their agenda, they're going to they're going to drive up congressional disapproval, and that could be very damaging as they look towards twenty twenty two. You know, and 
as they look to hold their congressional majorities. And, you know, if the Republicans gain control, uh, as we saw with President Obama, at that point, it becomes very hard to govern. And it matters for elections as well. Voters react negatively when electeds move things too far to their side. I create a time series of the congressional generic ballot. You know, this was just given at uh, at the Midwest Political Science Association conference. And what I find is that if the public mood is out of step with what Congress is delivering, there is a cost to pay, right? So, you know, the skeptics that that are saying, well, you know, the Republicans are, you know, they, they push these unpopular policies. One can simply point to 2018 as sort of, you know, the system working you know, as it should. And this is very consistent with the thermostatic model of, of public opinion, right? That Congress, you know, that elected elites, Congress, you know, the House, the Senate, and the president, um, you know, what have you, they could go too far in one direction. And then the Congress sort of, act, uh, the public rather acts like a thermostat. You know, I, I, I think that's very consistent. You know, I do think that parties are sort of cross-pressured where they have their political base that they have to be responsive to and the general public. And sometimes those two preferences, you know, those two demands of representation uh, collide. Uh, You know, a perfect example of that could be certain aspects of immigration reform, um, you know, where border security is relatively um, popular and, and, you know, broad um, sort of quote unquote amnesty uh, is not. It could also be on, you know, some aspects of the Green New Deal and, and, and the carbon tax. So there, the majority majorities are, are very much cross pressured. And I think that's why they place a premium so much on party leaders, you know, to sort of insulate them from taking tough votes that really articulate this cross pressures um, to the public. But, you know, I think to the overall point, th- this is a system. Uh, my work fits in very, very nicely with just the general model that if, you know, if parties overstep in terms of what the public wants, that there's going to be, you know, some sort of tangible cost to that. Um, In this case, it's congressional approval, you know, and if the cost becomes too much, you know, it could be enough of an effect to cost them the majority. And so I think Democrats have to be very careful in terms of what they're pursuing, in terms of what they're voting on, and in terms of where the public perceives a democratic majority to be in the in the ideological space. Caden agrees that Democrats may not get the full credit for popular policies they're passing now. They still face risks from their symbolic disconnect. Our findings wouldn't discount the possibility of overreach. I mean, in fact, they maybe if the liberals win, if Democrats win on policy, that sets the stage for the conservative identifiers in the party to to respond to symbolic appeals. And when Republicans win on policy, it sets the stage for operational liberals who call themselves conservatives to be won over by the Democratic Party. So so the findings of overreach could potentially take that form if you account for uh, both dimensions of ideology. But don't voters react to the president rather than Congress? Algara says there is still room for congressional judgment. There's been so much great work in political science recently about the relationship between the president and the Congress and the electoral implications of that. You know, of course, we've had colleagues find that now presidential approval is very much endogenous to partisanship, right? If you look at Donald Trump's approval rating throughout the course of his presidency, incredible, you know, the, the standard deviation of his approval, I believe, was the lowest in the modern era. And 
part of that is because he, you know, Republicans just overwhelmingly approved of him and he had consistent support amongst Republicans. I think that's true. You know, I, I do think that partisans on both sides approve of their president overwhelmingly and those and those attitudes are stable over time. Um, you know, and that's really what's defining electoral competition. My retort to that is congressional approval is not endogenous to partisanship. That citizens are really forming independent evaluations of congressional job performance. If you look at the approval rating of party leaders, right? If you look at Mitch McConnell relative to Donald Trump, approval of McConnell amongst Republicans is not endogenous, right? You know, his uh, I I fielded some questions on the 2020 CES, and Mitch McConnell's approval rating was about 31% or so. And Donald Trump's approval rating in that data set in my module is about 40, 41%. So we do see that uh, Republicans really liked Donald Trump, but even co-partisan leaders of their party, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, are relatively less popular. So this is to say that partisans, while presidential approval is endogenous to partisanship, congressional approval is not, right? And so we're able to, to see, um, I think, theoretically, and in, in our electoral models, you know, a significant relationship between congressional approval and partisan electoral choice, just due to the fact that it's not, you know, completely endogenous to partisanship. And I do think that's one thing, looking at standing models of, of electoral choice, why it's becoming so hard to put partisanship and presidential approval in the same model is that they're both highly, you know, they're highly correlated with one another, you know, in terms of partisanship. But, you know, I do think that, you know, the president plays a large role, obviously, in, in uh, the electoral dynamics here. But, you know, obviously, as a leader of the party, but in this era of collective responsibility, right, it's very much a party driven story. Right. You know, um, Donald Trump, certainly in his first two years, relied heavily on Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan to develop the agenda. Right. Joe Biden has a little bit more experience. But of course, you know, he's negotiating with Chuck Schumer. He's negotiating with Speaker Pelosi. He is negotiating, um, you know, with Joe Manchin, who's a pivotal member in the Senate. He's negotiating with co-partisans. And so I, I do believe that the president very much plays a role here. But I also think that the policy program developed by the parties with the president negotiating with his co-partisans in Congress also plays a large role. And I think that's what congressional approval is really capturing. Citizens do follow elites, but elites are still more extreme than their voters. I do believe that on individual policy positions. So, for example, the minimum wage, for example, the certain environmental issues that partisans really do follow the leader, right? You know, they do switch. They're certainly not switching their partisan preferences. They're switching their individual issue positions. If you look at, you know, all this scaling work, it's almost a consistent finding that members of Congress are, are certainly more extreme than the general public. So every time you overcome the methodological hurdle where, you're trying to measure citizen and elite preferences in the same space. A consistent finding is that members of Congress are always, always more extreme than the districts they represent. And they're 
almost always always ex more extreme than the median partisans in their districts that they represent. So, you know, I do think there's a lot of following the leader, no pun intended, uh, you know, party trumping ideology, uh, if I can use the, uh, you know, the verbiage of that great paper on individual issue positions. But I do think that the, that generally voters, you know, are able to make independent assessments about policy. So, for example, within the Republican Party, you know, you do see a, a healthy degree of variation in what to do about the Affordable Care Act. Of course, most Republicans today follow the, you know, the party line and, you know, they would advocate repealing the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, a lot of them do, don't support that. And a lot of them, you know, take positions that would strengthen, you know, the Affordable Care Act, you know, in more liberal directions. Caden agrees that it's hard to separate presidential influence from other factors. I'm not sure that we could say one way or the other based on our findings that voters are following cues from the president or following cues from other sources like the media, like other opinion leaders or other leaders in the party. I mean, I would certainly think the president would be really important. What we show is that voters in each party use different criteria to evaluate those positions, whether they're, whether they're, they're taking cues from the president or from someone else uh, in that when Democrats think about these policy positions, whether they're being teed up by the president or someone else, they think more in terms of policy they agree with and policy appeals, while Republicans are thinking more in terms of the symbolic nature. Is the policy, is the policy conservative? Would the bill constitute a conservative win or a conservative loss? One of the things we want to investigate is where exactly this asymmetry comes from. Is it something that's a product of elite cues, which we think is entirely possible, or is it not? And of course, the president would be front and center of, el of elites who would be giving cues. Algar spent time working in the Senate. He says voters don't distinguish between the House and the Senate unless the parties split the chambers. You know, a follow-up project to, to this political behavior piece is trying to measure you know, it not only institutional approval for both chambers independently, right? So asking people, you know, do you approve the House or the Senate, but also asking them, how do you, how do you feel about the political parties within the House and the Senate? Are they able to draw distinctions, for example, between Senate Democrats, which is a more moderate caucus than House Democrats, right? By, by definition, because senators represent states and states are uh, more diverse ideologically than districts. You know, I, I don't think that individual voters are responding to, uh, to the chambers differently under unified control. I think today voters have a sense that the Democrats are in control and they don't really have a distinction between the Democratic House or the Democratic Senate. My work shows that during split Congresses, like, like the Congress you had going into the 2012 election uh, after the 2010 Tea Party wave, that they're able to draw, you know, these distinctions and that when they're thinking about, quote unquote, Congress, they're thinking about the House of Representatives. So, you know, the Democrats, you know, had control uh, of the Senate and the Republicans had control of the House. When they're really thinking about Congress, they're thinking about the House. And so the closer you are to congressional Democrats, the less likely you are, you know, to, to approve of Congress in 2012, right? Because the Republicans captured the House of Representatives. Senators erroneously think voters care about the rules, but they do know they have limited time. When I was in the Senate working for a senator, 
I, I spent a lot of time thinking about congressional, you know, the rules of the Senate, specifically, you know, ways to reform the filibuster, um, which are, which is very salient today, given the uh, Democratic majority made by the two victories in Georgia. I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And senators spend a lot of time thinking about it, too, particularly within the majority caucus, because they want to get things done. Obviously, uh, the average citizen is not thinking about, you know, what happens if you lower the threshold from 60 to 55, or what happens if you get rid of it altogether. And I, I don't know that senators are cognizant of that. What I do think that senators are cognizant of is the fact that majorities are short-lived, the fact that majorities are very narrow these days, and the fact that you need agreement, and the fact that you only have one shot to get things done. I do think senators um, understand that if they don't provide representation, that there's going to be electoral ramifications. And, you know, I, I was there during the CARES Act, for example. You know, there was a lot of uh, bipartisanship in that regard, a lot of negotiations. And, you know, I think uh, um, I think both political parties understand that ultimately you have to be responsive to what the public wants or else, you know, you're, you're going to suffer consequences. You know, they don't read all the fancy, you know, political science and all, you know, the innovative theoretical models and formal models about it. But, you know, I think the general sense is, you know, they understand that. You know, they were elected to, to Washington to get stuff done. And if they don't, that you're going to, you know, potentially suffer the consequences. And if you're in the minority like I was, you know, you also understand that there's not much you can get done. So, you know, if you have an opportunity to negotiate with the other party to get something that you want through, you know, you should take that. It's very much a different world up there. Caton says their work helps to explain why Democrats wanted more shared policy wins under Trump than Republicans want under Biden. Our impression is that Republicans are more invested in obtaining political wins for their symbolic ideological group than Democrats are, which means they are more willing to engage in obstructionism from the minority um, for the sake of future electoral vic victory and, and appealing to voters. But the Democrats, because they're more committed to policy outcomes than symbolic wins, they might be more willing to horse trade to get some symbolic wins um, because their voters are more focused on, whether it's through elite cues or another mechanism, are more focused on policy outcomes or policy conflict than being able to say they blocked a bill um, that was supported by a Republican president. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Carlos Aguera and Adam Caton for joining me. Please check out Congressional Approval and Responsible Party Government and Incongruent Voting or Symbolic Representation. And then listen in next time. <laughs>